have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Square footage, meaning when you buy a home, you got 3,000 square feet, you got 1,000 square feet, whatever. That is the most expensive space we buy. Cubic feet, that's where we start to use our vertical space, is some of the least expensive that we have. Yet, that's probably one of the most underutilized areas in our homes. Do you have a question about your home, inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour with Ken the Contractor. You can reach Ken the Contractor with questions about your home, inside or out, at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And we're here weekends at this time to help you with issues about your home, inside and out. You can also post your questions online at our website, KenTheContractor.com. Now, we spend a fair amount of time talking about both buying and selling real estate. That may be undeveloped property, perhaps a condo, a new home, a mobile home. It doesn't really matter if you've got real estate that is permanent property. It's going to have a title to it. And one of the items that we have not discussed is maybe the best way to hold that title. Because we're frequently asked, well, uh, you know, first, who's going to be on the title? And then what form do we want to take title in? First thing I should caution you about is be different states may have slightly different rules and regulations about titles and how they work through their legal system. So in every case, what I'm about to share with you, it, you should be asking your title professional, your title company, your real estate broker, or specifically an attorney if you have legal questions. And while I'm not an attorney, I've dealt with an awful lot of real estate, both buying and selling in my career. And I've dealt with this over and over again. As I said, it varies from state to state. But I'm going to give you some legal information that comes from uh, a person who follows real estate. This is from Harvey Jacobs, who happens to be an attorney. So this is not legal advice, but it does come from someone who works in this business on a regular basis. Also is a, uh, a developer and a real estate investor. So he clearly understands the ins and outs of this. So what you've got is an attorney that I'm going to share some facts from, and then you've got a, a builder as well who's been doing this for a long time. And if you have questions, you want to go to the website or give us a call. We'll be glad to address them today. But if you're thinking about that right now, there are four primary ways of taking title to a piece of real estate. And most of us may have said, how in the world can there be four? Well, the first one is probably one that we would assume to be very common, especially if you're an individual, if you're not married, uh, if you don't have uh, children, you don't have other family members, and even if you do, if it's just something you're doing on your own, and that's to solely own this, you have a, a sole ownership, you are the only name on that title, which gives you all rights to do just about anything and everything that you can legally do with a piece of property. This is the most fundamental, most basic way that one of us, any of us, can hold title to that. And again, that's in our own name. We can lease the property. We can occupy the property. We can do everything that is legal and proper. We can sell the property and encumber it through mortgages. Secondly is a phrase that you may see on occasion. Sometimes even those of you that have bank investments, CDs, and others, they may ask you about similar language. I don't want you to be confused by it, but I want you to ask your banker about these and see if the meaning in your state is the same. But the second way to own property is referred to as a tenant in common. You say, well, I'm not a tenant. I'm going to own the property. I'm buying the property. Most of us think of a tenant 
as being one who leases from someone. But a tenant in common allows two or more owners to hold title. And this is most commonly used in, in businesses in purchasing uh, real estate. There may be two, three, four, five partners or business owners that want to come together, or the bank may require them to come together and own this collectively. So they have a tenancy in common, if you will. And that is something that we see used in residential purchases from time to time, but not as often as we see some of these others or even looking at the sole ownership. The With each tenant, when you have a tenant in common or tenancy in common, each tenant in common can own a different percentage of the property. That's one of the advantages for it to be used from a business standpoint. So there may be a case that there are three people rather than being shared uh, equally of one-third, that all of a sudden one person has 50% and the other two have 25%. So this is a way of defining in a contractual or legal manner also from a title standpoint who owns what. Now, one of the things we have to be aware of when we deal with the tenancy in common is that the right or the ownership percentage that each person has can be attacked. So if you own 50% and uh, your brother owns 25 and your sister owns 25, for example, and uh, your sister has a judgment placed against her name, then whoever owns that judgment can attack that 25% interest in that property. So there are exposures that we have as we bring more and more people into real estate holdings. And that's always something that I've kept in the back of my mind, and I'm encouraging you to do so as well. The third method is joint tenancy with right of survivorship. And that really has the implications that you would, would guess when you see or hear right of survivorship. One main difference, as its name implies, is that when a joint tenant dies, the surviving joint tenant acquires his or her interest. Now, for some out there, we might want to be looking over our shoulder if we take property in that, in that way. But seriously, it helps to eliminate some of the probate issues and other things that we deal with out there. And the fourth one is tenancy by the entirety. And this is reserved really exclusively for real property ownership by married couples, um, domestic partners, uh, where each spouse is deemed to own 100% of the entirety, subject only to his spouse's ownership of 100% of the entirety. It gets a little complex, but what I want you to do is understand that there are right ways better ways, and in some cases wrong ways, to holding title to your real estate. And the important thing is that if you didn't follow all of that, you don't understand it in great detail because it can be very confusing if you don't deal with it on a regular basis, is that you ask your title company or your real estate agent or your attorney for very specific information so that as you acquire title to land or you transfer title that you may be reducing potential estate issues, uh, as to as, as low as possible and also eliminate potential legal hassles for you at a later date. So ask the question. The only dumb question, remember, is the one you don't ask. Well, I remember growing up listening to a guy on the radio who said, whenever you're dealing with any type of land or property issues, you always have to have an attorney. There are so many legal pitfalls. And the other thing oftentimes is just determining, do you have clear title in many cases? Yeah, that's a fact. And that's becoming more and more of a difficult question around the nation today. So title insurance for me is an item that I'm always purchasing. And secondly, I am dealing with an attorney 
to work through all of the potential issues that can come up. And I've done this for a long time, folks, and I'm still working through real estate attorneys. They are well worth the dollars that I'm paying them. Ken Batterson is Ken the Contractor. He has over 30 years' experience working in the commercial home building industry, and also major projects up and down the eastern seaboard. He's here weekends to help you deal with simple home improvement questions or complex ones. You can always reach Ken through his website. That's KenTheContractor.com, or you can dial in a question and join us here on the show at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you do happen to miss it, portions of a program, you can always go to our website, KenTheContractor.com, and you'll find podcasts of recent shows, all online and available to you at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Thanks for making Ken the Contractor part of your weekend. You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phones right now. Wayne joins us. He wants to talk pressure washers. Hi, Wayne. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. All right. Let's talk pressure washers. Okay. I don't think my brother-in-law, who is a builder of houses at Kings Mill and Williamsburg, which are very exclusive houses, he warns against pressure washers. Yeah. If, you, if there's little hairline cracks in the brick, which happens to all houses, this forces water in behind the brick. And on the, if you keep doing it and keep doing it, it's going to start smelling. It's going to start molding. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, if bricks installed properly, it has an airspace behind it. Masons would yeah. refer to it as a finger space. It gives them room to lay that brick. And that actually, there is some very minuscule, but some degree of energy efficiency that that adds to the overall structure. Right. And that's one reason we put vapor barriers on the wall before the brick goes up, because moisture, depending on the type of brick, moisture can get through that brick anyway, the face brick and the mortar joint as well. But there's right. no there's no doubt about it. Anytime you force water against something, it has a greater potential of penetrating that and sitting there and taking longer to dry out. But it should still dry regardless. It's no different than having well, a massive rain. But I do want to say this with, with pressure washers and brick, manufacturers of the brick do not recommend using a pressure washer on brick. One, because you damage the face of it. Also, because as you uh, are talking, it can damage that mortar, and in the winter months, that can create some other issues. So I'm one that would suggest, I suggest you stay away from pressure washers and brick anyway. Well, and aluminum siding. If you don't know how to use it on aluminum siding, what you're going to do, as Jim has talked about on occasion, leave the mark of Zorro somewhere in there, because it will cut through the finish. It'll drill a hole in it. That's right. But it, you know, plus, plus salt-treated lumber. He said do not use pressure washer on salt-treated lumber. Well, it tends to get rid of some of the effectiveness, some of the chemicals and so forth that's on that lumber, and uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with that either. Again, it may look great for a while, but you have to think about what you're doing in terms of harming that. Most of us wouldn't take a pressure washer to our car. Yeah, uh, that's and, exactly right. And so if you're not going to put it on a finish like your vehicle, you need to be careful. Now, I'm talking about the average individual. If you've got a trained professional that understands the type tips to use, the pressure, because 
you, most of us think 5,000 PSI has got to be better than 2,500. There might be a reason to use a 1,500 PSI pressure washer for some basic cleaning, but you're not forcing water into your mortar joints or damaging your brick if you know what exactly. you're doing. Exactly. So yeah, you're, you raise a very good question that all of us should be thinking about. Just because I've got a 5,000 PSI unit doesn't mean I can go out and, and uh, clean everything here. So be careful whatever you're doing with the pressure washers. Good call. Thanks. Thank you, Wayne. We do appreciate it. And yes, I did leave the infamous... Mark of Zorro on the uh, brick front of my house. Well, that's the reason I refer to it occasionally. Yes. You've made everybody in listening land aware of that. So I just, it's a reminder to folks that, one, if they want to know where Jim lives, it's the one with the Mark of Zorro on the, <laughs> yes. on the foundation of the right home. On the brick. But secondly, uh, you know, as we just discussed, uh, pressure washers are great at doing certain things, but it's so easy if you don't know how to use it, like any other tool, to damage the property. Be careful. All right. Let's go to our mailbag from KenTheContractor.com. And this one comes to us uh, from Francis, who listens to our program on WEEU. Yeah. Francis um, apparently lives in Shillington, PA, in Pennsylvania, and she's looking at some fence work. We have so many fence questions. In fact, when we look at our website, fencing usually ranks in the number one or number two slot of hits and questions that we have. So a lot of you are involved in fencing, whether you have bad neighbors or just you need to do a lot of maintenance or you just want that privacy. In her case, she's got pets that she's trying to deal with. She said, we're going to replace the old wooden fence in our backyard. It's full of holes and has many broken boards due partly from baseballs. Our yard backs up to an open field where the kids play ball. She goes on to say, said, I'm happy to have them there and we have good neighbors, but I need a solid fence to keep my dogs in. So I'm glad... Francis, that you qualified that. At least I know this is not about your neighbors. He says, I'm tired of repairing the fences. I've looked at vinyl fencing, but I'm told it may be damaged by an impact. It's too pricey for us to replace or repair on a very frequent basis. Should I use thicker wood and replace with the same wood materials, or are there other things in the market? Well, your first option, as you brought up, is that you could use a thicker wood material. If your post and the secondary structure, meaning the horizontal members, are sound, Francis, and then you may want to just consider replacing the vertical boards on your fence. Most prefabricated fences, and I'm making an assumption here, are installed with materials that may be five-eighths or a half-inch thick. They're much thinner than traditional one-by boards, where you're dealing with three-quarters to seven-eighths of an inch. So if you have a high-impact area and you really like the wood fence and you also find that it suits your budget, you may want to simply replace all those vertical members with a, a full, thick, one-by member as opposed to using a regular fence slack. It will take a lot more impact, and it will last you much longer if it is still a fence material and pressure-treated, if that's what you've got now. But I do want to give you, at least I want to share with you, a product that I brought to the show here a few months back. First time I saw this was at the International Builder Show. Brought the sample in. We couldn't show it to you, but Jim and I were quite impressed with this. And it's a product produced by uh, uh, Simtek, S-I-M-T-E-K, Fence. And you'll find out more than I have time to share with you on the air, but go to Simtek, www.simtekfence, S-I-M-T-E-K-F-E-N-C-E.com, and you will see this particular product that is... It is a stone-looking fence. It's molded using polyethylene and reinforced with galvanized steel. This fencing material has started taking off as I have followed it. I have not installed any on projects. I'm looking for an opportunity to do that. But as I have followed this, as it's expanded around the country, apparently it's gaining quite a bit of traction. Well, you know, what I was impressed when you brought it in is it actually looked like something that, that you would utilize on a uh, – 
a pseudo brick looking wall uh, that that you were looking to put up or some type of natural stone it you touch it it has a smooth finish but it 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 appears to have texture it appears to have texture it actually has some depth to it there are mortar joints if you will that are cast into this but the the things that impressed me so much when i first saw this product is its resistance to impact to golf balls, to baseballs, for people that live in high-impact areas where rocks or other things. I mean, just neighborhood things that kids get involved with. I.e., people who have kids or who have kids who live next door to them. live next door. I mean, these are all things that develop when you've got play yards and those type items. So it's so impact-resistant that it will take a baseball at 90 miles an hour, and it doesn't put a spot on it, and they've tested that. Also, it's designed for high wind loads because of the structural system. So if you happen to have issues with with snow that builds up or just high winds with some of your winter storms, this can be a great asset. And one of the best things that I see that will make this product successful in the commercial world and certainly more urban areas is that graffiti washes off of it with soap and water. So you're not going to be able to paint or discolor or disfigure this. And again, the manufacturer is? Simtech, S-I-M-T-E-K, Simtech Fence. Go to SimtechFence.com. And, Francis, for you and others, that's what I'd recommend in the environment you're dealing with. You're going to find it price affordable in most cases compared to other vinyl products on the market. And tell them that Ken the Contractor said to get in touch. Absolutely. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can reach him through our website. Lots of information there, including in Ken's toolbox, some of the most popular to- topics that we deal with on a regular basis. That's right there on the front page of KenTheContractor.com. Or if you'd like to join us here on the radio program, it's 800-614-2975. That's the contact number for Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question for Ken about your home, inside or out? You can always reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And it's time now for our green building segment. Going green includes exterior yard and house lighting. And we've got a bunch of different things to talk about this week, Ken, in our going green segment. One of the items that we frequently forget about is the outside when we're thinking about making our home more energy efficient. You say, how can you do that on the exterior? Well, some items that have become very popular we know is our hardscaping, patios, our landscaping. But with that comes lighting, whether it's floodlights, accent lights around the house, ground lights, accent lights for your trees and shrubs. And in years past, those have all used incandescent lights. Not unlike the interior of our home today, there is a lighting source available that uses about 80% less energy to generate the same amount of lighting. And there's one company that I'll mention to you that uh, I have found that I think is doing an outstanding job in taking the lead on these LED lights, and that's a company called iLighting. They're out of Maryland. If you want to check them out, you go to the website and do that through iLighting, and I'll give you a little more information on that in just a moment. But the, the fascinating thing about this is this company realizes how cumbersome installing LED lights can be for many homeowners and for that matter landscapers, hardscapers, contractors in general. And they have developed a very simple system of linking these lights together, these LED lights. Now when we talk about lights, we remember the traditional light bulb that we've all grown up with that we buy that sometimes they don't last until you flip the switch one time. Then you're back down to the store paying another dollar or two when you could get them for those the LED lights have really come a long way just in the last few years that they've been in the marketplace. They're cost-effective. Uh, the longevity certainly are keys to, to, I guess, them being quite popular or becoming more and more popular, especially among builders and end users alike. 
but they come, these LED bulbs from this company come with a lifetime warranty. Now, I don't know if that's the person that makes it or the person that owns the home. I haven't read the fine print, but I'll get to that. But it's, it's advertised as having a lifetime warranty. And as I said, they use all LEDs, or most LEDs, I should say, use 80% less energy than a standard incandescent bulb. And the ones that I have looked at, some that I've purchased, are rated for 100,000 hours of operation, or which equates to 12 years or more if it's used 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Most of us don't leave lighting on like that, especially accent or just room lighting. So I want you to think about outside, especially if you're getting ready to install accent lights or replace those around your pond, your patio, your hardscaping, lights for your trees. It may be just floodlights that you use for lighting the way in your driveway or sidewalks or just wall lights. Think about these LED lights that are out there, and you certainly want to consider iLighting, and that's iLightingOnline.com as one source for your material products. So save a few dollars and save the energy and help save the planet. All right, let's go back to our mailbag right now with a question I think a lot of people deal with and wrestle with, with yard maintenance. And I know this is an issue I've got. You know, there's those list of things that you keep telling yourself you're going to do around your home or yard. And with me, it's a couple of holes in the backyard that for years I've nearly twisted my ankle on or other people, my son mowing the lawn. And I keep telling myself, Someday those are going to get filled in, and I'm going to have a nice flat surface to go ahead and mow and not at times uh, make it sound like I'm going through an obstacle course. And it sounds like our, our emailer is going through the same thing. Well, I think this is a little different because having a hole in the yard is one thing, but in Gene's case, he has a trench that I think is for drainage. So I want you to pay attention. So There's his a difference issue, here. His issue is on steroids compared to mine. Absolutely. Yours is a hole in the yard that if you put a little green grass around it could be a putting green maybe. Yeah. I need you know, but if not, then all it is is a trip hazard. So a bucket of topsoil may solve the problem. Gene says we dug trenches beside our driveway to handle runoff, and a lot of you listening to me out there are right there with Gene. Most of the spring, uh mostly in the spring and fall, he has water issues. Now those trenches are preventing the mower from getting Across, obviously, he's got trenches and he's got a riding or a push mower and he's got problems with that. He says, my first thought is to fill the trench to the level, the surface, with road gravel, which is less dense than clay soil, but will handle the weight or his weight of the tractor, the weight of his tractor. He said, will I ruin my trenches in this way or will they still work? Do I need to install a perforated pipe drain around and or along with the gravel? Well, Gene... You've got a simple problem and really a simple solution. One, you've got a water issue that you are trying to deal with in some of these heavy spring and fall rains that you get, and you're resolving that by constructing ditches along your hard surface. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You're getting the water out so that it doesn't stand on the drive or adjacent to your house. And all of us should be conveying or moving that water away from our house, not towards our house and not allowing it to pond. What I'm going to suggest you do is probably a hybrid of what you're asking me about. One, in order to get the lawn tractor across it, riding or push mower, the stone's probably a good way to to fill that. But if you fill it solid with stone, you're actually going to reduce the volume of water and the flow rate of that water as well. You may find you still have water in the spring and fall that backs up on your driveway or adjacent to the house. Then you really haven't solved your problem. So do what you have suggested. One, you want to install a perforated pipe, and you want to fill around that with stone. 
But before you do that, you also want to install a fabric on the bottom of the ditch area so that over time it will reduce how it eliminates rather the stone just disappearing into the, the dirt, the earth over time as you roll over it. So put a landscape fabric below that, put a bed of stone in, install your pipe. Be sure that you're using a perforated pipe. It can have the holes or the slots in it. And then you want to continue with stone around that. And stone is graded in a similar fashion in most parts of the country. I'm going to suggest to you you look at a number 57 stone. If you want to top it with something that's larger, you may want to consider a surge stone, which for most of you, that's about the size of your fist. And you also want to be sure that you're not operating the mower with the blade engaged as you go over this. So I'm assuming from this it's more about transportation. How do you get the mower back and forth and not have these ditches to, to maintain? That should solve both your drainage issue give you a nice clean look you won't have a ditch to maintain and you've got a level that gets you from the driveway to your yard on a regular basis well and and i can tell you too my neighbor did this next door and it's a dramatic difference i think a lot of us for years have had these little culverts out in front of our house uh and and depending on the angle and the degree of everything else it's just a nuisance the other nuisance you get is quite often when you're trying to mow that if you've had recent rains that area stays very soppy and wet it does. so it makes it real difficult to grow anything that looks really attractive in there and uh, the idea is that that you're talking about he did basically the same thing he just elongated the culvert put large pipe in there so now it still does what it's supposed to do but you don't see it and he's got a, a very smooth contour to his front yard it's a way of blending this in with your landscaping and depending on your planting that you may have around this, actually it becomes part of that landscaping. But one item you just mentioned that I have to caution everybody about is those pipe culverts that are under most of our driveways, especially if you live in a developed area as opposed to on farmland, you can't arbitrarily extend them without permits because typically those ditches are in the right-of-way and belong to the Department of Transportation, your city, your county. So you want to check with them and see if they have a particular permit that's involved because you're working off your property. And or does it, if so, does it have to be a certain type of pipe or end that goes on that? Don't get in hot water over that, but it's always a question to ask. Most of you will find it's a non-issue. Always safe to ask the question up front. Always easier to ask first because as we've heard from, from people on this program, they didn't, and then the code people came back and said, look, you got to take that down, and we got to go through the process again. And usually, you're out that money. You're out the money. Nobody's going to make you whole, so ask the question up front. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Would you like to talk to Ken the Contractor? Ken Patterson, you can at 800-614-2975, or you can send him an email question to KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back, and you're listening to Ken the Contractor. Working on a little bit of a project this weekend, maybe need some help, give Ted a call. He can help you out, 800-614-2975. Or if you're shy and don't want to be on the radio, you can email your questions to kenthecontractor.com. we got more email questions we'll get to in just a moment. Right now, time for the App of the Week. The ever-famous App of the Week. And this one many of you may already have. This is one that I picked up here a few months ago and have used a couple of times. And I find it very handy both in the business world and sometimes just when you're out on your own. What we understand is we are a multicultural nation. We have people from all over the world speaking so many different languages, and sometimes it can be a little difficult to communicate or to really understand that word. Having just uh, come back from a trip overseas not long ago, I found in some countries there are people speaking fluently four languages, and I'm saying, I'm still trying to master English. I need help here. Anyway, my app of the week is called a Talking Translator, and I've got it on my smartphone with me as I sit in the studio today. This translator allows you to speak into your phone 
And I would keep the sentences short and fairly simple, but it, to speak into your phone, and it will translate what you are saying into, I believe, up to 14 different languages. Really? And the other way around, if you've got someone speaking Spanish or a di- other language, maybe Italian, it, it, whatever, they can speak into that phone, and you can see the printed word translated. So if they're trying to communicate with you, you've got someone working around the house and uh, they're not speaking English as, uh, as well as you would like them to do so and you, you can't quite understand them, for you to have this handy and ask them simply, you know, to show them or stand there with this while they're speaking and let it be recorded, it will give you the words in English so you might better understand the task or the project or the work or the access, the things that they're asking you to help get something done around the house. Likewise, if we're communicating with someone from other parts of the world, it's the same for English-speaking folks to be able to speak into this thing and have it translated into, again, uh, French, Italian, Spanish, and so on. But about 14 different languages. I have found that it works reasonably well. It's like most anything, any computer device you're speaking into, you have to be fairly slow and you have to be concise and you have to enunciate properly. If you do not, then the words may be misconstrued, and that's the downside is you end up talking to them about painting the wall red, and you end up with purple. So all I want you to do is be aware of it. But I find it to be an interesting and fascinating app. It's absolutely free. It's available for Android-based phones as well as your iPhones. That's uh, very helpful to me because my entire basis uh, for foreign languages are key phrases that I've called from James Bond movies over the year. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you've used one of the higher sources for learning language then, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> you can tell I'm a, I'm a very well-rounded and well-traveled individual. All right, let's go back. We get some very interesting mailbag questions. And i got to tell you, this one has to go to the top of the list from Ian in Virginia. Yeah, and I had to look at this at first and then say, okay, we have other calls and email questions to deal with pests. And so many of us have critters of certain types around our home. We're saying, how do I deal with this, uh, especially if you don't want to blow something up? And that's not recommended by anybody today, the animal rights groups, individuals. You know, we just we don't want to do those things. So the, let me go to the question before I get myself in trouble here. This comes to us, as you said, from Ian in Virginia. And he said, I have a large outdoor front porch with a ceiling fan. Last year, a bird made a nest on one of the fan blades. The uh, the birds made nest on two of the fan blades uh, recently. What can I do to prevent this from happening? And Ian, you know, my off-the-cuff remark, and I have to say this, is turn the fan on. But I know that's not really where you want to go. That's kind of a, a smart remark, and mm-hmm. I want to give you a serious answer because that's not proper. Now, it, for those of us that do have outdoor fans that tend to stay on most of the time, we may not have an issue on the fan blades, but I have seen this occur on the fan housing. So even for me to give you that answer would not be correct because they will still nest on parts of the housing that does not move. And any time we have something out of the shelter that's still outdoors, we all have issues with birds. And this causes me to look at some of the products and things that many of us have been exposed to over the years. And what I would suggest to you is consider some type of a bird repellent product. There are products that come in spray-on form. They can be applied in brush form. And I'll give you a couple of names here in just a moment. There are also gels that come in a caulking tube form that you can apply to windowsills. You can apply to eaves if it's a particular issue, the bird droppings coming down on windows or over doors, or in your case, on a fan blade. And most of the products, especially the gel and brush-on, are typically designed to go on just about anything outside, whether it's wood, it could be stucco, it could be brick, it could be block, it doesn't matter. 
What I haven't found is these being terribly effective regarding woodpeckers. So I'm assuming these are ordinary, any other species of birds, because woodpeckers are a separate issue that we deal with on occasion. Yeah, we have had a couple different questions from folks about that. And the woodpeckers appear to be a totally unique situation from a lot of other birds when you're trying to control them. And that's partly because of what they're looking for and eating. So we're, I make a, an assumption here that Ian's issues would be with birds other than woodpeckers. And many people have indicated to me that the, the gel and the material that you can spray on or brush on products that are eco-friendly do no harm to the birds. They are environmentally friendly. They're biodegradable. And you should have no issue uh, finding these. If you're not interested in using those, there are also sound devices that are out there that are used with to, to keep woodpeckers and other birds away as well. And uh, these are have just some type of a supersonic sound that the birds hear that we don't necessarily hear. And those typically start somewhere around $125 to $150. And they emit predator sounds that uh, drive whatever your particular pest bird is away from the area that they're nesting in. And really, if you only have a nesting issue, they're there short-term for a few weeks out of the year. This is something that you need to use short-term. You're not going to have it up all the time. But one company that makes a lot of bird control products is called Nixalite, N-I-X-A-L-I-T-E, N-I-X-A-L-I-T-E. And with that company, you're going to find the gel that comes in a tube form that I'm talking about. You're also going to find brush-on products that are environmentally friendly, biodegradable. This is not harmful to the animals or to the watershed in your particular area, always an issue for us. And so I'd recommend you take a look at that and see whether or not that will solve your problem. They have several down there. But if you continue to have issues with this and you have tried these products, send me another email and we'll follow up with some other alternatives. But these are quick and simple and environmentally friendly, and that's where I'd suggest you start. For anybody that has bird issues nesting under an eave, maybe they've gotten in a garage, these products work. Very good. And, you know, the only thing we find with some of the repellents and stuff, you may have to use different combinations or different repellents. That's the one consistent thing we seem to find about animal repellents. There are certain things that I'll never forget this. Uh, we had a family dog at one particular time who got enamored with uh, uh, the plants my parents were planting in the whiskey barrels in front of the house. So my dad got some of that hot pepper spray. Well, as we found out and watched with amazement, the dog treated that like salad dressing and more, really more like ravenously <laughs> uh, devoured it. But there's other stuff that they will stay away from. And, and you've just got to sometimes, it's almost trial and error, going out treating areas and seeing how whatever you're trying to repel reacts. And you mentioned that there is one product called, it's spelled P-I-G-N-X, which really is a product made with uh, capsian which is what makes chili peppers very hot. That's not uncommon in, in pest and animal control. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. If you have a question about your home, inside or out, you can always reach Ken at our contact number. That's 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or online at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have questions about your home, inside or out? KenTheContractor.com is all you need to know. I'm Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Visit KenTheContractor.com for answers to plumbing, fencing, electrical, roofing, painting, heating, fireplaces, decks, and much more. Submit your questions or call anytime. Remember, KenTheContractor.com, where folks come for professional answers. <laughs> 